Good afternoon, everyone. This is the More Conversations podcast with the Andrew Young Center for Global Leadership at Morehouse College. I'm your host, Jalen Lowe, a graduating senior psychology major from Eden, North Carolina. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dominique Johnson. Dominique Johnson is a Bowdoin College graduate, also a graduate of the new school where she obtained her master's. She's also a racial justice warrior and is the current senior director for community engagement at the Center for Police and Equity also referred to as CPE. The Center for Police and Equity is a national nonprofit organization that eliminates bias in policing by measuring it. The mission of CPE is to end its disparities in law enforcement by facilitating, aggregating, and disseminating research on gender and racial bias in policing. With that being said, I would like to welcome my guest, Dominique. Hey, Thank you so much, Dominique, for joining. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm great, it's good to see you. I know. So you told me to bring tea. So I want to, I brought my tea. Yes, I got mine too. All right, cool. So we could take, we could take little breathers in between and just have a good conversation. All right. Okay. So today our conversation is really based around reimagining public safety and then the work of CPE. Um, So just jumping straight into that, I would like for you to provide a introduction of CPE and also your role in CPE. All right, cool. So I'm going to give you like the the Wikipedia history of CPE, because there's a lot of twists and turns. But in 2004, um, it was the first ever policing and racial bias conference. And it brought uh, Dr. Phil Goff and Dr. Tracy Kazee, who's my boss, um, together. And then they met at that conference again, talking about how they could bridge the gap between science and law enforcement and communities. And in 2008, Uh, They established CPE as an initiative to promote collaboration between social science researchers and law enforcement. And today, I would say we are CPE, the um, research and action-oriented organization that produces analysis to identify and reduce causes of racial disparities in public safety. And specifically, my role, I like to say, is like policing and. So many people know CPE for its science and its data, But what a lot of people don't know is that those connections to community are really important. And I, my role is really to work with communities, their lived experiences, their collective powers, their ideas, and figure out how we can bridge the gap to bring law enforcement and communities together to help make policing less racist and less deadly and using the science to promote that justice. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for that. So what brings you to this type of work? Oh my goodness. I, I, it's a long story there, but I, what brings me to particularly racial justice work, police, um, police, um, I guess I would say enforcement work, all of the public safety work that we see is because I, I don't believe you have to be enforced this way. I don't believe that you can change what you don't have a good understanding of. I personally believe that a lot of the things that law enforcement has been tasked to do are things that government should be doing, to be quite frank. Um, There are stop gaps that we have sort of put in place to enforce and criminalize people's circumstances, whether that is their mental health circumstances, whether that is educational circumstances, whether that's financial circumstances. It's always enforcement instead of proactive investment in communities so that people can make good decisions. Um, A lot of people say that folks choose what happens to them and that's why they should be penalized or that's why they should be uh, taken into custody for breaking the law, so to speak. But the laws are sort of set up 
in a way in which people don't have really great opportunities or choices and they're making the best of the worst choices. And if you're not proactively investing in these black and vulnerable communities, how do you expect people to find other alternatives to thrive? And so that really is what brings me to the work is this notion that people deserve the liberty and justice that America says that we should have as a democracy that we don't see, especially for black and brown and other um, indigenous and BIPOC communities. Yes, ma'am, most definitely. And to my understanding, CPU uses an evidence-based approach to social justice. Um, so could you speak to how the data is used to measure bias within policing? Yeah, so it's especially from communities, right? A lot of communities come to us and they're like, we want to work with our police department, but we don't understand this. Or they're collecting for this and we didn't know. And you can't really change what you don't have a good understanding of. And so, like I said, we're working with law enforcement and communities to let make policing less racist and less deadly. And we're working with departments data. So they come to us um, and we're analyzing for data that they already have or we're identifying data that they should collect already. And so we're looking to get a sense of the proportion of disparities that police departments can control for. So like when people say use of force or traffic stops or arrests, what are problems that police can control versus those disparities that police departments cannot control? And that's sort of what we do when we're doing that, well, not we, but when our wonderful data scientists are doing this analysis, that's what they're looking for. Um, and then what I do is I take that information and give it back to communities as well with our law enforcement counterparts who allow conversations to happen so that people can make decisions about how best to reduce those disparities and focus on the places where people can create better efficiencies for police um, footprints and make more equitable public safety that is community-driven and community-centered and community-led. Yes, ma'am. And keeping the community focused and the community-centered, um, what impact has CPE held on departments nationwide through data-driven data interventions? So we've had 25 cities that I can talk about that have delivered specific scientific products. And we've seen 26% drop in use of force, 13% decrease in um, injuries to police officers, 25% fewer arrests. And that is not um, attended to a crime search because people think that, oh, if you do all these things then crime is going to rise and that's not true. And so bringing those results to scale can lead to fewer lawsuits against officers, um, drastic improvements in communities because there's less of a footprint for police departments, fewer civilian injuries, fewer officer injuries. Um, I think one of the biggest things that I, I'm proud about and that's been in the news has been around the reimagining uh, public safety in Ithaca and Tompkins County and what has happened in, North, uh, in Nassau County in New York and Long Island. And so I don't want to jar your questions, but I'm happy to talk a little bit more about both of those if if you're interested. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Could you, could you expand on that? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So I'll start with Long Island. So Long Island, um, the coalition came to us, I would say, right after the uprisings uh, last May, uh, we had um, someone's mom actually reached out to us and was like, hey, I saw you guys on um, the TED Talk with Phil, and I want to be able to get Long Island involved in this. They're doing, they have a coalition of different counties and really interested people who want to reimagine public safety and create recommendations to meet that New York Executive um, Order 203. And so the Executive Order 203, if many people don't know, 
was around an assessment of the public safety landscape in policing in New York under uh, Governor Cuomo. And he wanted to give people until April 1st in these localities with police departments to look at policies, practices, procedures, and their impacts on communities of color. And so the Long Island Coalition came together and created this fabulous people's plan. Um, we worked with them on like processes, giving them information and resources on best practices for data collection, evidence-based practices, um, and sort of work with them to understand what policing systems and structures look like in their local landscape. And then they were able to collectively decide these are the things that we are really invested in, what we really like, these are the things that we want to see change, and here's some recommendations. We also worked in Ithaca to do that as well, but it was comprehensive because it had uh, many stakeholders involved from the onset, which was a little different from Long Island, where the community sort of drove all of this and then brought the proposals and the plans to um, the stakeholders in Long Island in those counties. So in Ithaca, the police department, the mayor, city officials, and in Tompkins County as well, all came together. We had about, I would say, six months of working groups to um, collect feedback and um, get collect all the data that we needed to understand the department. So the sheriff's department, as well as the police department in Ithaca, we wanted a community to weigh in on what they felt were burdens and practices or things that could be changed if they had um the states to be able to determine what public safety looked like in those two counties. Um, And then at the end of it came sort of these 19 recommendations, which everybody was really shocked when the GQ article came out with Mayor Myrick, which pretty much the headlines are, you know, dismantle the Ithaca Police Department. And it was really revolutionary in the sense that this had never been proposed as as one of the foundational recommendations, the number one recommendation. And many people were sort of like, how did you get to this? How did collaboratively law enforcement community stakeholder, uh, political stakeholders all agree to this? How did that data show that? We don't know if we'll be able to make that recommendation pass. And it did. April 1st came and um, the Ithaca Common Council and Tompkins County Legislature passed those recommendations unanimously in Ithaca. And they are working to... Um, design a different type of department. They're going to disband the Ithaca Police Department and work to reimagine a collaborative community solutions department to take care of public safety um, in the in the community. Yes, ma'am. That's major, and that's that's a good step forward. Um, so that also ties into the next kind of conversation piece. Um, thinking along the lines of like how the vicious legacy of white supremacy has been the cause of suffering suffering for many communities across the globe. Um, and its like involvement in and its historical significance in the legacy of law enforcement as well. Um, I see a lot of people argue that you know you can't really fix a system that was designed in this way, um, and we have to abolish it. So, could you speak to the the difference between like abolishing and reform, and what you think, in your opinion, is the best way to go about that? Yeah. So first, I just want to say that like change can happen, like wholeheartedly change can and will happen. And I think that when you really talk about the things that you care deeply about, it's easy to find alignment. I think the buzzwords are what get people going. I think it keeps people activated in the hashtag moments, the social media moments to, to feel tied to a particular uh, you know word or narrative. But I think 
we as a society just haven't imagined what it could look like for communities that are most vulnerable to change, make change. Like if you had the option to change things, what would that look like? Um, if you had the resources not to call police departments in the first place, what would that look like? And I, I think that when you're talking about abolishing or reform or any of those things, people completely forget that everyone is an invested stakeholder in public safety, right? That's from the proactive investment in communities that have been forgotten about a lot um, or are still in spaces where poverty eats up at any any type of upward mobility. And that's also with the police departments who have been sworn in to protect and serve communities in uh, you know, the way in which their job descriptions are written. And those things are not, I, I don't think that those things are mutually exclusive. And I also don't think that they have to stay in the status quo. You know, we've been focused on fixing law enforcement as opposed to the broader project of fixing democracy and public safety and, and racism in this country. And I think we need to fix policing, but take a break from policing that is the Jim Crow, the Jane Crow era, acknowledge the fact that the current structure has been rooted in slave patrols, in racism, and then be able to let communities decide what enforcement and what that public safety structure looks like, because it could be just investments in resources proactively that will allow people not to feel that they have to call police departments in the first place. And so I think change is going to be smaller police departments in exchange for more resources and understanding that racism is deeply rooted in the democracy and the fabric of this country. What do you do about that? How do you let people collectively regain power that they never had access to? Um, And then I think everything has to be community centered. And so I'm, I didn't answer, especially just about the buzzwords per se, because I don't think, I think the buzzwords are what define people into these categories when ultimately many people are just asking for investment, proactive investment in Black communities and a and a say in how systems are um, set to uh, protect, serve, and provide for folks. And then Um, In addition to that, breaking from this notion that police departments have to function in this way. And so I hope that that gets to it without, you know, really saying like abolish or reform because they're all actively hoping to liberate Black people and vulnerable communities. Yes, ma'am. That answers a lot. Um, So thinking along the lines of community-centered as well, like, what are some of the examples that vulnerable communities are in need of in terms of their resources? Oh, goodness. I mean, <laughs> first of all, every community is unique, right? You want to make sure that you are accounting for every person who lives in your community. What are people saying in your community? Because, for example, in Long Island, half of the people are saying we do want police there because these are the things that we think they do really well. We just want them to do better at these things have more time to do these things and stay out of these things. And then in other places, it's like, we don't need, we just need money for black people. Take that budget for the police department, that $12 trillion budget and pour it into getting people um, early childhood education, getting people mental health resources, getting people, you know, all of the, the, the things that they need to be able to thrive. What I caution people about a lot when I talk to community members is that this entire system is racist. 
And so if you move, you know, mental health supports from police departments, you want to make sure that you have the right resources for people when they are in crisis. So let's say a small town comes, they say, we want to move mental health calls for service away from the department. First question I ask them is, okay, so who's picking that up? Tomorrow, if someone calls and says, I have a crisis, my family member is in a mental health crisis at this point, who are you calling? Oh, I would just call like 311. Okay, who runs 311? And where this, where this, where is this person going? Are there therapists that match the demographics of your community? Are there enough of them? Are there people who are um, already equipped to provide proactive services of investment for folks? And when you ask people that, it becomes, I'm not sure. I don't know. I need more information. And so the person who's in crisis, what is happening to them while you're trying to get that more information? And it's not to say that departments should take that burden at all. It's saying who will take that burden? And will this burden or this department or whoever person takes it, takes the responsibility, are they also a part of a racist system? You know, is it because healthcare is is a racist system? Um, education is a racist system. So who's taking that responsibility over when you are saying you no longer want police departments to handle it? Yes, ma'am. And it's also um, just thinking along the lines of like the media. So the media has popularized here recently this concept of defund the police. Um, so could you speak more to that? Because I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people are still un- unsure of exactly what that, what that means. Yeah, I think when I talk to people, it's like defund, give all this money back to communities. That sounds great in, in theory, like as you're hearing it, like, of course, give all the money back to communities. What happens is, is that a police budget is already allocated um, for, for the year. So if you are pulling that money from a department, it does not mean that it's automatically going to education. And it doesn't automatically mean that it's going here. It doesn't automatically mean it's going there. It just means that they're just going to re, you know, allocate resources within the department to make those cuts. Also, what people fail to realize when they're talking about defunding is that when you defund, it's always going to be last person in first, um, last person in first out. So that means any type of officer who did have some progressive backgrounds or leanings or wants to serve their community they're most likely younger folks and and more eager to be collaborative. And they're going to be the first ones out of a department. And that still leaves the people that many folks may call bad apples or, you know, status quo type folks. You also are cutting the civilian positions within a department. I did a policing one-on-one training recently with um, folks at CPE because we have former law enforcement come and work with us. And the first thing they said was like, we would be nothing without our administrative body. Those are all of the people who are servicing a police department in itself on a day-to-day basis. Most of those people are Black women or women of color. Most of them are sole breadwinners in their family. So when you're defunding, those are the people that are losing their jobs. And if you have a, a lot of these single Black women losing their jobs, they're the folks that are carrying the ecosystems for families in communities. And then again, you're losing on the front end of the lack of investment, but you're losing on the immediate end of money coming in from someone having a job. Again, this is not to say that we should keep the status quo or that this is the system and just don't change it. But when you say defund, you really have to understand the structure of your local landscape, the budgetary constraints, who's voting on the budget, how they're voting on it, when they're voting on it, 
and what what can you do as a constituent to advocate for the cuts that will make the most difference and the most sense in protecting the community itself? Yes, ma'am. And also, so understanding like within these systems um, that there's been like longstanding issues that have held a, a large impact on particularly like brown and black communities. Um, it's held an emotional toll, a physical toll, and a spiritual toll as well. So, like, how can communities begin to heal from this generational of trauma? Getting reparations? Um, <laughs> no, I would say that. But no, um, I really think healing takes time, and this work takes time. I think people see it as, oh, I'm just going to dismantle this department, but there are like 18,000 police departments, and they're all different, and they're not standardized. And when you don't have standardized policies and trainings and practices, it's a long game. You know, it's a it's a game that takes forever to understand um, and then also to impact and make changes. That doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that it's impossible. It means that it's going to take a lot more emotional labor and toll on folks and also just a reckoning of what is possible now, what will require a long game and then what wins can you celebrate? Um, I think healing is always a part of this work because if you don't, if you don't see yourself as valuable and worthy or the narrative is that somehow you don't deserve to make those changes or you don't have the positions or you are unable, um, if you really are internalizing the, the lack of mentality or the inferior complex that is sent out into the world with this white facing narrative, um, it's going to take a long time for you to heal, right? And then every time you turn on the TV, there's some brutalization of a black, brown, or a person of color. And so it deters you because you feel as if like, man, every time I thought I was making change and here this goes. Same for me, like when I come to this work, um, for example, we have the anniversary of George Floyd um, coming up and we're in the middle of the Derek Chauvin uh, murder trial. And then the other trials for the other um, convicted officer, the other um, sort of accused officers is in August. All of that work still has to, all of that work influences how people show up for CPE to do this public safety work. If the verdict goes really well, people will feel energized and they'll want to do that in their local landscape. If the verdict goes poorly, that means that people are going to be demoralized, but they're also going to be empowered and angry and driven to get moving and make that change that is not coming through the justice system. But you have to stop and think like, how does that impact people on a daily basis? You know, always being pushing, 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 no matter what the circumstances are. And I think about it a lot. I just say that healing comes with the small wins and the small joy um, honing in on that and leaning in community to do that is what I, I think is helpful. Yes, ma'am. And before we wrap up, I just wanted to give you a second to take a tea break. I know I've been wrap, uh, rapid fire yeah, questions. Like you, so. yeah. All right, here we go. Cheers. Virtual cheers. Cheers. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's good. Listen, <laughs> that this work is a, like a long journey and it's continuously taking a toll. Um, and we understand that self-care is very important. Like, we have to take care of ourselves before we can help others. So like, what does your self-care look like so that you're ensuring that you don't burn yourself out with this type of work? Well, 
pre 2020, it was me just jumping on flights and going to the new cities that, you know, what it's say wearing less going out more like Drake says, but um, no, it's real. It's for now. My dog brings me the most joy because we're in the house because of COVID. And the minute I'm done with my day, I'm like, by Zoom, and I like jump off the computer and go hang out with my dog, and we're like trying to skate, learn how to skateboard, and um, I watch a lot of TV, just like mindless Netflix shows, <laughs> and trying to to stay away from social media as much as I can because sometimes it's like really empowering, but as of late, it's been a little draining um, because it's so many current events are tied to the work that I do every day, um, and it's really my self care is drinking tea and just hanging with the the family that I do have, but I'm super excited uh, to get back out in the world and get back to traveling. Cause that's really what sustains me is seeing other places and spaces and learning so much about uh, folks lived experiences and, and how my experiences have shaped who I am and learning more about how experiences shape other people um, to make the world that I hope one day we can see. Yes, ma'am. And that's really good. I'm glad that you have a routine built in um, so that you can maintain yourself and your well-being. Um, so in wrapping up, uh, just so a part of our young community that will, will view this and the social justice people that will view this, um, what are the action items or how can people get involved in this type of work? Absolutely. I think everyone's involved in this type of work because racism is touching every aspect of the world um, at this point. So just being an ally and making sure that you are constantly following um, best practices and, and taking your lived experiences and, ex- and inspiring others just from conversation and reading and materials. But you can also go to our website, uh, policingequity.org, and then all of our social media at Policing Equity on Twitter, Instagram, um, and Facebook. And I will say that we do cater to different demographics on each one. So for example, on Instagram, there may be more uh, youth activist focused mindsets and activities that you can um, be inspired by and be able to take um, solace from. And then on Twitter, we have like research papers coming out and digestible ways to think about that stuff. So always just follow our our website and our materials and um, just be the change that you wish to see in the world and take breaks, take a lot of breaks. This is a, this is a marathon and not a sprint. Yes, ma'am. Most definitely. And for our audience watching, thank you for tuning in and be sure to check out again, policeandequity.org. And Dominique, thank you for joining us. This has been the More Conversations podcast with the Andrew Young Center for Global Leadership at Morris College, which are hosts Jalen Lowe and my guest, Dominique Johnson. Again, thank you. Of course. Thank you so much. See you soon.